George Santayana said, those who do not learn from the past are destined to repeat it. May that not be so. May we learn from the past. You believe the devil is real? Do you believe man is sinful? Do you believe in Christ? Our only hope. Lord Sabaoth, his name. If you will, look in the, your copy of Scripture with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm just going to read one passage here. But we're going to look up lots of Bible verses. If you don't want to flip through like that, jot them down. Or get the video at the end if that's available. If not, we can, you can talk to a neighbor. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Scripture is about Christ. The Bible is about Christ. You believe in sola scriptura, that the Bible is God's authoritative word? Well, what's the message of that authoritative word? It is, as Paul writes to the Galatians, that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those that are under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus Christ came in time and space. And that is the grounding of our faith. If Christ has not come, has not died, has not been raised, then we are all still in our sins. Matter of fact, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, we are most pitied. We're fools. In the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation centered around this question, which is a common question. It's a question that's in the Bible. It's a question people still ask today, and the question is this. What must I do to be saved? Have you asked that question? What must I do to be saved? The reformers answered this way, well, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're saved. That word alone, that's the key word. That was the line of demarcation between what the reformers held to and what the Church of Rome believed and still believe. It's still the case today. So this morning, Christ alone. God accomplished salvation for sinners by Christ alone. All right? And we want to look at that. We want to consider that. If we miss the work of Christ, who he is, and the cross of Christ, then we diminish who he is, and it is no Christianity. So Christ in his cross the person and the work of Jesus Christ. According to Roman Catholic theology, Christ's death on the cross, 
did not fully and finally deal with the penalty of man's sins. Instead, what Christ did was to provide grace. And that grace can come and be applied to you through various sacraments. Baptism, penance, and the Mass. See the difference there? He just makes grace available, but if you want that grace, if you want to receive that grace, here's how it's, you get it, you got to get baptized. You got to go confess your sins to the priest. And you have to go to the mass. In fact, it remains even to this day. They pronounce an anathema on anyone who denies the efficacy of those things for salvation. That if you say, no, I can be saved without being baptized or without going to the Mass or without penance, they would say, anathema on you. You're damned. The Reformers said, no, no, that, those beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church are unbiblical. Because we do not believe anything because some man said to believe it. We want to know what says the Bible. And that is our desire today. What does the Bible say? And that's what we'll examine. What does the Bible say concerning Jesus about his work and that it is a finished work? Jesus himself said on the cross, John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And so the moment that we start adding anything to the finished work of Christ, it becomes null and void. It changes it. It's not Christ alone. Christ did provide a full and final payment for sins through his death on the cross. Friends, not even our response to Christ and what he did is what saves us. Now, faith and repentance are necessary, but they do not save us. They are gifts from God. Luther said faith, and it's a beautiful picture, is like a bandage. And Christ is the medicine for your sin-sick heart. And faith takes that medicine and applies it and holds it there. And it's Christ that heals you. That's the role in which faith plays. Your faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you. We need an alien righteousness. And I do not mean UFOs. I mean a righteousness that's not from us, a righteousness from outside of us, a righteousness from somewhere else, another source. And if you understand the cross, you can understand the Bible. You can understand who Christ is. Every other Christian doctrine is diminished if we lose truth about the cross who he is. Everything else is reduced to sentimentality in light of the cross. If you come to the scriptures and you look for anything other than Christ, you're coming to a closed book because it's all about him.
John 5, 39, Jesus asserted, the scriptures bear witness of him. Or remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus goes from all the scriptures, teaches them about himself. He is the subject of the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells the story of Jesus Christ. Christ alone. Christ, his finished work. That must be the object of our faith. Again, Luther said, faith is no faith without an object. And the only saving faith is faith in the saving one. So it's not faith that saves you. It's the object of where your faith is resting. And that is in Christ, the saving one. Salvation is found in no other than Jesus Christ. His death completely satisfied the wrath of a holy God towards sinners. His death was a sufficient sacrifice for sin, and he is the perfect substitute. And he paid a debt that we owed, but we can't pay. So those are the three things that we'll see today. All right? Christ. The cross of Christ. John 3, 16 through 18. You're familiar with these verses. It's the complete satisfaction of the wrath of God. You know John 3, 16. You've memorized it since you were wee high. But don't miss the context. Those verses together say, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus' foreordained hour of his arrest and trial and crucifixion, as it, comes, as it drew near, Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The wrath of a holy God is laid upon Christ. That wrath is satisfied in the cross of Christ. This claim is made shortly after Jesus' resurrection when Peter boldly asserts in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one. Do you know that? There's only one person to ever walk this planet that's able to deal with the sin problem of man. And that's the only man who did not sin. God's own son, Jesus Christ. Anselm wrote, The debt of sin was so great that while man alone owned it, owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. 
So without compromising his divine justice, God, out of the immensity of his love, his inexplicable love, he designed and he carries out the atonement. And it's the only way in which God's wrath could be appeased and his justice stand firm. Luther again says, since all of us born in our sin and God's enemies have entered, have earned nothing but eternal wrath and hell, so that everything we are and do is damned. And there is no help or way of getting out of this predicament. Therefore, another man had to step into our place, namely Jesus Christ, God and man. He had to render satisfaction and make payment for sin through suffering and death. Jesus Christ, the God-man, he satisfies the wrath of God. So imagine the darkness that hung on men's head. It's so appropriate, Phil reads Isaiah 9. Imagine the darkness from the old covenant. Sacrifices never ending, ongoing, knowing their own sinfulness. Even their priests are sinful, as we saw in Sunday school. And then imagine the light dawning. And the, from that dark night, the sun comes up. Christ, the God-man, who can finally put an end to it, who can satisfy the wrath of God and make payment for sin. In the same way, in the darkness of the night is the wrath of God hung over men's head in medieval times. That darkness is removed. Because salvation is found in Christ alone. Or later, a later hymn writer, the fact, this fact, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He did what? Washed it white as snow. When Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door of Wittenberg, it was the beginning of the end of the indulgent system although it still goes on, no longer could they dangle uh, uh, promises of forgiveness and absolution over fearful and gullible worshipers. No, the proclamation came loud and true that God's wrath is satisfied, and it's only satisfied through the blood of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Do you believe in him? That cross is a sufficient sacrifice for man's sins. Jesus instructed, remember the Israelites, in order for God's wrath to be satisfied, a blood sacrifice had to be offered. In preparation for that first Passover, a spotless lamb was to be slain, and that lamb's blood was to be painted on the doorpost of that dwelling. Exodus 12, 13, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
Later on, he explained in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. And the New Testament affirms this glorious truth, Hebrews 9, 12, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Today, the we, we, this idea of sacrifice, we water it down. It's a problem for us because we think, I'm going all month with no dessert. Boy, that's a sacrifice. That waters that idea down. We use that word so cheaply. When it's more than that, there's an obligation that needs to be met. There's a debt that needs to be paid. There's, uh, biblically, a sentence of death has been pronounced. And our sins has placed us at the mercy of God, and we have incurred a debt that we are incapable of paying ourselves. No sacrifice you could ever make could cover and to make up for your own sins. You can't do it. But there is a sufficient sacrifice that can deal with your sins. God himself is the one. He provided that sacrifice. He provided that offering. So enter Jesus Christ. Remember as Jesus comes upon the scene, the beginning of his public ministry, it was John the Baptist in John 1.29 who says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later on, years after Jesus has died on the cross and uh, risen from the grave, he's ascended back into heaven. Peter affirms John's original testimony with these words, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. The writer the book of Hebrews reminds us this contrast with all the repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament in that Levitical system is in contrast to that brother Larry Jesus is offered once Hebrews 7:27 Hebrews 10:10 10, 10. he's offered once once and for all by a single offering Hebrews 10:14 he keeps safe those who are his. So let's take a pause because you may have been raised good Baptist folk here. I was raised good Pentecostal folk. I never met a Catholic until I left the mountains, moved to Springfield, Missouri, worked at the Boys and Girls Club, and it was uh, Ash Wednesday, and a kid comes in to shoot basketball, and I keep telling him, Wipe your head. You've, you've got something on you. I didn't know they put ashes on their head. It was new to me. So what's going on? Roman Catholic theology teaches that the Mass, do not think they do the Mass, we do the Lord's Supper. 
It's not the same. We're talking two different things. Roman Catholic theology says that the Mass is exactly the same sacrifice that Jesus offered on Calvary. The same sacrifice. They would say it's a bloodless sacrifice. But it's the same sacrifice. You know the doctrine of transubstantiation. We've mentioned that before. That the bread, the wine, when they're all, it's offered in the Eucharist of the Mass, that as the priest blesses it, it really becomes flesh and blood of Jesus. Well, you say, well, that's nonsense. But don't rely on your common sense. The most offensive thing about that, the reason that doctrine is wrong, the reason it was rejected by the Reformers, the reason it's rejected by us today, is because it is a perpetual re-sacrificing of Christ. Christ died once for sins. There is no re-offering of that sacrifice. If his sacrifice is not good enough to cover your sins, there remains no sacrifice for you. It's not good enough. The testimony of the New Testament says that Christ has suffered once for sins, 1 Peter 3.18. Once, and that's all it took. The God-man offers a sufficient sacrifice for sins. We saw this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That, that's a, that 50 cent word, but it's an important word, isn't it? That atoning sacrifice. It turns aside the wrath of God. The same that shows up in Romans. Chapter 3, verse 25, the NIV renders it this way. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. His death is the sufficient sacrifice for sin. It doesn't need to be repeated. It only needs to be received by faith. God does not ignore sin. His character demands it must be punished. People in every age have reason to fear God because God loathes sin. He must punish it. And while propitiation talks of turning God's wrath aside, he never ceases. To hate sin. He hates it. He has to deal with it. And he dealt with it through his son, the Holy Christ. And his anger is laid upon Christ to appease, to satisfy his just anger of those that believe. Do you believe that? Because that's the two camps. Either you believe in the Christ and Christ has taken your wrath, you bear no wrath, you bear no punishment, or you are still bearing it yourself. It's those two camps. 
through the sacrificial death of Jesus, God satisfies his own wrath against sin. So that what? His love is displayed towards those who have faith in him. They call upon his name. He saves them. Now the church in the medieval age did not preach. Many people did not preach that gospel. Many people did not. Throughout history, God's people, there's kind of been this ebb and flow of acceptance of God's truths. Isaiah 9, verse 12 again, right? Think of those Old Testament. Isaiah prophesies, the people have walked in darkness. They've seen a great light. They dwell in deep darkness. On them a light has shone. That's quoted again in Matthew 4, 6. With the coming of Christ, there had to be some similar sense after a thousand years of spiritual darkness and being told, you have to earn your salvation. You have to be good enough. Or you have to pay some money. Or do enough good things to finally be told, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. To, to rediscover that amazing truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ alone. He is a sufficient sacrifice for sin. Finally, he's the perfect substitution, right? For sinners, this is 1 Timothy 2 that we opened with. We all need a mediator. We need a mediator on our behalf. It is through a mediator. Through the mediator, the work of a mediator that Jesus Christ does in, on the cross. It becomes personal for us there. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and, and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There's only one way to God, isn't there? There's only one way to God. And that role of a mediator, the negotiator, he works with both parties, he brings about this transaction between both parties. He represents both parties to one another. This is the priestly work of Christ. He came to earth to reveal God to man. You know what God is like because Christ has revealed him. John 1, 18. Hebrews chapter 1. He is the exact image of the glory of God. We know what God is like because of Christ. And so now, as an advocate, he stands in for believing sinners before a holy God. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Again, Luther said, if you want to make atonement to God apart from Jesus Christ, the mediator, so make your works what you stand on, 
the mediation between him and yourself, you will inevitably fall just as Lucifer fell and in horror and despair lose God and everything. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what he does. It's how we're justified. This alone is how we attain a right standing with a holy God. Arrhenius said, for the sake of infinite love, he, that is Jesus, has become what we are in order that he may make us entirely what he is. The Apostle Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Charles Wesley captured the same thought, same thought amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, one little word can have huge significance. Sometimes it might be a minor significance, but have big impact. The word for is often that way. For instance, Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, where we are told... While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So for just means on our behalf. He died on the behalf of sinners. But sometimes, it's more personal than that. It's not just on behalf of. It's he took my place. For instance, Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom. As a, as a ransom for many. He died instead of us. Literally, he took our place. He lived the, how, how often has it been said? He lived the life we could not live, and he died the death we should have died. But we couldn't make that payment. He did. Praise God. Praise God. Christ alone. Friends, just three applications, three easy applications from this glorious doctrine of solus Christus in Christ alone. Actually, four. First one is this. Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with God through Christ? If not, you do not know God the Father. You may say you're a Christian, but not unless you've gone to the cross. It's the only way to be a Christian. The center of Christianity finds its focus 
at the cross. So here's an, here's an implication for us. The days are going to grow shorter. I'm sorry. It's happening. Leaves are falling. In a two months, well, probably this week, some radio stations probably already started. But in, in a couple weeks, everybody's going to be celebrating his birth. And we love to celebrate his birth. I know. Every, we love the season. We love Christmas time. We love all the trappings of it. But please remember, please remember the reason for the incarnation, the reason that Christ came, the reason that the God-man dwelt among us was not just to be a baby. He was born to die. That without the cross, the manger doesn't mean anything. All right? That he came to provide redemption for repentant sinners. So let that be your focus even this December as you think about his coming. You give thanks that he came to die. Secondly, think and the implication is this. Since the death of Christ, since it's the true focal point of Christianity, there is no gospel apart from the cross. The life of Christ, as perfect as it was, is not the gospel. Okay? It's not the gospel. Jesus is an example to the believer. But his life was not lived as an example of how you can get to heaven. He's not an example in that way. Any so-called gospel that focuses on Jesus' life and example and minimizes the satisfactory atonement and sacrificial work, the substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners, is at best a partial gospel, and is at worst a false gospel. So, the social gospel, we want to examine what, do you, what is meant by that language. What is meant? Can sinful man, repenting of their sins, be saved? and still not meet social standards that you think are acceptable? Or do you say you have to achieve this social norm before salvation is granted? What of black liberation or any liberation theology that takes the cross and says, no, 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 this is talking about modern economic, social standing. What of the prosperity gospel? Those may be far in your mind, but every one of you that has a television station at home, the prosperity gospel is pumped into your living rooms 24 hours a day if you want it. That is at best a partial gospel and is at worst a false gospel.
Friends, there is no gospel apart from Christ's work on the cross. Beware pious language as well. You've heard like, I don't have religion, I have relationship. Well, apart from the cross, all religion is just some subtle self-deception. But if you say you have a relationship that isn't focused and built around the cross of Jesus, it's not a Christian relationship. And likewise, true religion that's been to the cross is a good thing. It is a good thing. Saying you're a Christian doesn't make you one any more than saying you're a king or queen will give you a kingdom. And so the reformers, they, they declared, and it's the same thing we declare, unless you've been to the cross, unless you've, if you haven't been to the cross, you've never come to terms with the wrath of God. You, you've got nothing to do with it. You can't deal with it. You, you understand nothing of the awfulness of your own sin. If you think you can be good enough, you don't understand it. You have no concept of the faith that awaits those who attempt to come to God in any other way than Jesus Christ. So you have to come to the cross. God, the creator, stepped into humanity in order to become the redeemer. And in doing so, he caused everything in his creation to glorify him forever. Go to the cross. Go. Know the wrath that's deserved. Know the seriousness of your sin. And glorify God for what he has done for you. In Christ alone. One last quote from Luther. He says, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Christ the Son of God has done for me. So, are you a Christian? I'm not asking what you have done. I'm asking, what has Christ done for you? Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord, you are great and glorious, worthy of all praise. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There are no other ways to you. There's no other way to heaven. We are unable to be good enough. We are unable to live, even as Christians, spotless enough. We can't do it. We need Christ. All that he is, all that he has done. Lord, I pray for the heart that has been in darkness. I pray that the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ would shine even now. 
And that in Christ alone, they would have a relationship, a restored relationship with you even now as they say, save me, O Lord. What must I do to be saved? And let them look to Christ. And know that all has already been done. Just believe in Christ. His finished perfect work. Lord, for those of us who are your children, swell in our hearts a love. The immensity of your great love towards us that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That when we're faithless, you're faithful. And Lord, just as many have died in years past, Lord, may we so love the gospel that we would not just sing like we sang earlier. May it be true. that they may take the flesh, they may kill us. But your truth stands, and your kingdom goes on. Your truth prevails. And so, Lord, use us to spread the glory of the gospel. Christ alone. Let that be ever on our tongues and in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.